Welcome to another PureFandom.com podcast. This podcast is a part of our Fierce Female series. In this episode, we chat with author of the worldwide best-selling Outlander series, Diana Galvedon. Now a hit, award-winning show on stars, Outlander first started as an extremely successful book series. Last month at Wizard World Chicago Comic Con, fans had the opportunity to not only meet the main cast of the hit star show, but meet the woman who first brought the characters to life, Diana Galvedon. What's so incredible about Diana is that her talents don't stop at creating fantastical love stories, rich with history, drama, and twists. Before Diana was a worldwide best-selling author, with VIP packages at some of the largest comic conventions in the world, Diana was, and still is, a scientist. Diana holds three degrees in science, zoology, marine biology, and holds a PhD in quantitative behavioral ecology. Plus, she has an honorary degree as a doctor of humane letters, which entitles her to be Diana Gobbledon, PhD, DHL. Pretty impressive, right? At Wizard World Chicago Comic Con, I had the privilege of moderating her panel. Tune in as Diana breaks down her thought process as she writes, her thoughts on the book's portrayal and the TV adaptation of her series, new details on what's next for the Outlander series, and what romantic line in her novel that her character Jamie says to Claire that her husband actually said to her first. You can find more news and more of our Fierce Female series on purefandom.com. Subscribe to Pure Fandom Podcasts on iTunes. so far? Oh, yeah, immensely. Yeah, it's a very lively convention here. Good vibe. <laughs> and awesome. a lot of very lovely costumes. <laughs> I know, we see some of them in line here. Do, it's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Fabulous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get right to the fans. Yeah. Right ahead. Yeah. Right yeah. Hi, my name is Diane. My Stand closer to the mic. And I'm also a writer. I have a daily range writing, and it seems like 
graduated from college that um, the well was kind of run dry. Um, any words of wisdom as a writer that um, you could give me would be greatly appreciated. Yeah, what to do if you're a writer and you kind of feel like your creative well has run dry. Yeah, read good books. I mean, they're catching.
about what potential crystals we're looking at. Okay, what does the light do? You know, does it protect against the wall on the other side of the room? No, probably not. Um, and it's not protected by, I mean, the sunlight bands when it passes through a lava under you must have fairly sensitive too. Does the light bound, you know, and drive it into the table? There is a table, okay, the light, I thought I'd know something else now. Okay, the cold blue light of a late winter afternoon passed through the crystal goblet, and what does it do, you know, right? What does light do? It just lights up something else. I could see what it's lighting up, it's making a tool, making a, you know, puddle of light, made a puddle of light, now that sounds like your glass is what it is on the table. <laughs> <laughs> No, the cold blue light of a late winter afternoon, we're good that far, passed through the crystal goblet, because that's the center of it. Cold blue light of a late winter afternoon, passed through the goblet and fell, you know, and splat, oh, that's not right. Uh, passed through the crystal goblet, casting, okay, it's casting itself. It fell, <laughs> fell through the crystal goblet, passed through the crystal goblet. The light blue light, the cold blue light of a late winter afternoon, passed through the crystal goblet and cast a pool, not a puddle, a pool of amber light, I can see it, it's amber. The cold blue light of a late winter afternoon passed through the crystal goblet and cast a pool of amber light on the polished wood tabletop. I can see that. So now I know where I am. I'm in Joe Casta Cameron's study because she's the only person that would have a polished table, a glass window, and a glass full of whiskey. That's why the light is up Wow. Okay, so how does that work for one of your sex scenes? <laughs> for the sex scenes, I just listen to them talk for the most part. There you go. Yeah, see, I think people, especially writers who are at the beginning and don't really know how, they're thinking that you have to describe it physically, which I've done you know, really embarrassing sex scenes out there. Uh, a good sex scene is essentially just a dialogue scene. A good sex scene is about the exchange of emotions, not body fluids. And so, you know, people should talk while they're having sex, or you know, it can be a sort of a subconscious conversation that they should at least think while having sex, so far they're not just, you know, trails of ecstasy trailed down my, you know, whatever it was. This is very nonspecific. A good sex scene is a scene that could only have happened between these two people. You know, if you can substitute Anna and Christian, it's not a good sex scene. scene with enough physical cues to anchor the action. See, everybody knows basically how sex is done. You don't have to outline it for them. What you do need is to, you know, uh, sort of give them enough that they can visualize what's going on. You don't have to paint it in for them. They can do that. In fact, the more you can engage the imagination of the audience, the better it is. So you know less is more in terms of a sex scene, but the dialogue is very important. Mm -hmm. And you have a companion book about, like, how to write sex scenes. Yeah, right, I yeah. had enough questions about that. Yeah. So I actually wrote a, a small book. It's, it's, uh, it's about 30,000 words. So it's just published as an e-book at the moment that we can yeah. do it as a, as a you know, giveaway book for Christmas or something. Hey. But, uh, <laughs> no, that is helpful, though, for writers because yeah, it's, it's one of those, you know, yeah. It's called I Give You My Body, or I Give You My Body, uh, and it's subtitled How I Write Sex Scenes. And that's all it is. It's, you know, this is everything I know about how to write sex scenes. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Is there any validity to that? And 
or as my husband said, why birds build nests where they do and who cares anyway? <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you have to write scholarly journal articles and technical uh, things and documentation and uh, exams and the, you know, all kinds of stuff. And I also wrote uh, comic books for Walt Disney for a couple of years, like this land of Boray and what you might call fiction. But the thing is, no one had ever told me how to write any of this stuff. You know, if it was a, a software review from InfoWorld, examining the software, I looked at their format, I, I wrote them to review it. And if it was something else, I tried it, and if it didn't look quite right, I'd poke it till it did. And so when you've been reading novels for 30 odd years, surely if you write one, you won't make any good. So I said, okay, uh, obviously the way to learn to write a novel is just to write a novel. So the very novel for practice, what could be the easiest kind of book I could write for practice? No one's making it hard. And so I thought about it, and I said, well, for me, probably a historical novel. I was a research professor. I knew my way around a library. I said it seems easier to look things up than to make them up. And if I have no imagination, I can steal things from the historical record, which actually works very well. And uh, so I said, okay, historical novel. Where shall I set this? Because I don't have any background in history to speak of. So I was looking for a time and place, and I was thinking American Civil War, you know, Madison and the Borgias, what sounds interesting. And in this malleable frame of mind, I happened to see a really old Doctor Who run on public television. And it was one of the old Patrick Troughton episodes, the second Doctor. And the doctor, for those of you who don't know about Doctor Who, though I imagine most of you do by now, uh, the Doctor is a time lord from the planet Gallifrey who travels through space and time having adventures. And along the way, he picks up companions from different periods of Earth's history. Well, in this particular uh, season, he had picked up a young Scotsman from 1745. This was a young man who appeared in his guild. I said, well, that's kind of fetching. And uh, <laughs> so I found myself still thinking about this next day in church. And I said, um, <laughs> I know, if you want to write a book, it doesn't really matter where you set it. The important thing is pick a point and keep going. Again, top of 18th century. So that's where I began, having no plot, no outline, and no characters, just the rather vivid images conjured up by the notion of a man in a guild. I think it's so awesome that, um, you know, as I'm sure, like, I'm a new mom. I don't know if anyone raised their hand if you're a mom here. Yeah. So, and you find that, you know, you think, oh, I just don't have any time. You know, I have kids, yada, yada, yada. But it's almost the most important time to do something mm -hmm. for yourself mm -hmm. when you're crazy with kids. So, mm -hmm. thanks for proving we can still do it. Appreciate oh, yeah. it. <laughs> maybe say here that a lot of people say to me, oh, I want to write, but I don't have any time, or I'm going to write this as soon as I have time. I'm checking my head, meaning you're never going to write anything, buddy. <laughs> because the truth is, nobody has time. You make it, or you don't have any. And uh, I just was, I was talking to Graham Huffage this morning. He was saying that he liked writing when he was younger and was really thinking that maybe he should go back to it, but as usual. And I said, well, Graham, you don't need time. You need will. I said, uh, this about this last year, and he was like, he'd like to write something, but I said, look, have you got 10 minutes a day? I said, anybody can spare 10 minutes a day. You'll probably hold your breath for 10 minutes if you really tried. I said, but, you know, take 10 minutes. I said, sit down and then write something. You don't have to have any ideas in your head, just write something. Put words on paper, you know, write about what you're looking at, write about what's in your head, write about what someone just said to you, but write for 10 minutes as a sustained effort. And, uh, you know, and then stop, okay? Do it again the next day. Do it again the next day. Keep going. And at the end of the week, I guarantee you, you won't you won't want to stop after ten minutes. You will you will have ideas and you will be going on and exploring them. 
And I said, you do this, you pray 10 minutes a day, routinely, but every single day for a year, you will have the rough draft of a reasonably good novel. So if you don't do it, you won't have anything. So that's how it works. Yeah. still be mistakes in it. There are in every single printed book. <laughs> so uh, 
that's basically what happens. And then after the first pass galleys, it will then go to press, essentially. Yeah, there's still a chance to catch things during the second pass if someone comes up, oh my god, <laughs> we, can, we can go and do a quick thing. All right, now ideally that process would take about six months in practice for the last three or four books. It's been taking five weeks. <laughs> yeah, well they are kind of, well see they make this mistake. They, uh, they, they assume that I actually know when I will finish a book. And you know, I've, I've told them repeatedly, I have no idea, but they, you know, they keep pushing because you know, they're used to scheduling books a year in advance. So they have all their things set up and they're thinking, well, we want to schedule this book. It's a big important book. You know, we need to round up the marketing and, and the co-op fees and everything else. You know, we need to know when it's coming out. I'm sort of, <laughs> well, I will tell you my very best, absolute, most honest estimate of when I think I will be finished with this book. I will be wrong. I am always wrong. It's always going to take longer than I think it will. It's always going to be longer than I think it is. I said, you know this. We've done this the last three books. <laughs> you know this is going to happen, right? Yeah, okay. All right, this is my best guess. Uh, next day, I open uh, you know, Amazon and it's advertising this book with a for sale date. <laughs> yeah, so this is what leads to the Chinese fire drill of the Five Income. But see, I, the thing is that, that I know this. I mean, they can pressure most of their other authors by saying, well, you know, if it's not in by now, you know, we'll have to move the book, you know, as though this is the worst thing that ever happened. And uh, <laughs> I'm sort of like, yeah, okay, move the book. <laughs> but it's not good, you know. The thing is, when you see a for sale date on Amazon, everybody, you know, circles their calendars with that. And then, of course, the book isn't done and, uh, because it's like, well, it wasn't going to be done. And it's, uh, it shows up three months later, and they're like, oh, Diana was late. <laughs> it's like, no, you know, they just guessed, and they guessed wrong, you know. Uh, the book is done when I'm, when I'm writing it. It's basically what it comes down to. That said, you will get bees sometime next year. <laughs> <laughs> for me to use it because you know every day is important to be there. 
there. And you know, what kind of battle was it? Oh, it was a big, messy battle. That's the only time. No, yeah, we can use that. So, I, so that's a set thing. So looking at that, I will have these large chunks of book lying around, and I will think, I'm using the Battle of Monmouth. This particular chunk has to have happened after that battle, so it goes over here. Do any of these things, uh, well, this has to have happened more toward the front, so it's over there. Uh, this one, I'm not sure when that happened, but it's probably kind of close, but in front of the Battle of Monmouth. And so I can set up my chunks as we go along and peg to different historical events. And with luck, at a certain point, I will see the overall shape of the book. Each of the books has an internal geometric shape. And once I've seen that shape, the whole book falls into place, and the writing gets much faster because I can see what's missing and fill things specifically to fit that. It's kind of like playing Tetris in my head, but much more slowly. <laughs> travel would be the most difficult to write, but having historical events like that to kind of hold you accountable to things yeah. is probably super helpful. Yeah, well, it's uh, anybody who writes time travel has to deal with how does your time travel work, and uh, consequently, when I realized that I actually had time travel going on in my book, it had nothing to do with Doctor Who, by the way, it was all Claire's fault, but, um, <laughs> but once I realized that was there, you know, that was in the back of my mind, you know, was how does the time travel work? I didn't need to know that immediately. I just knew, you know, who Claire was, and I realized fairly quickly where she had come from, and you know, just wrote that in mind. And I figured sooner or later I'll figure out the time travel. And then I began noticing mentions of standing stones through all my research about the British Isles, and every single one would describe the circle and speculate about what it might have been used for. And every single description ended with, "But nobody knows what the stones were used for." I began thinking, "I bet I could think of something." <laughs> Man has a fractured skull. You know, you're going to take a, a, 
auger-style drill, and you're going to drill down into his brain. <laughs> Is this really going to improve things? <laughs> so anyway, I could tell that the, the script writer was just dead set on doing this, because she had this thing going. I don't know, I would not blame her entirely, because it may have been a collaborative decision that they wanted Claire to, you know, to be all stiff and, you know, and uh, yeah, distant from Jamie and you know, feeling unsure. Well, all good to a point, you know, but their way of doing that was she retreats into her Dr. Lake shell, <laughs> you know, every single situation, you know, Jamie is saying something tender and she's going, I have a patient. Yeah, which I didn't like, but then anyway, because they had decided that this was the strategy to pursue, and also they were dead set on having the visual of Clara Shane <laughs> driving this, this, this drill into the man's head. I said, if you are going to do that, for God's sake, you know, have her use a terpene. I said, you know, and I told them how to spell it and how to pronounce it. <laughs> they went ahead and pronounced it trefine, even though I told them it was a terpene. But, you know, Clara's English, we assume she can get away with that. Anyway, and I said, you know, have them, uh, have Claire send the, the mate to the surgeon down the street. There would have been one there in Edinburgh. He would actually have one of those. <laughs> Tell them to bring back a terpene. And, you know, uh, also shave the hair. You know, where she's going to do that. They should have solved that one by having the guy be bald. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I also told them, you know, scalp wounds bleed profusely. There should be a lot of blood on the pillow and so forth. They didn't do that because they liked the ease. <laughs> and so, but they still kept the, oh my God, we've got a subdermal hematoma. <laughs> because, you know, she didn't have hours to sit around and diagnose him. <laughs> so, you know, it's always a, a, you know, a conflict between what's actually reasonable and what they want to do. <laughs> Sometimes it works. Just a few more minutes, um, but I want to make sure we get all of your latest questions, so we'll just call this lightning round. How about okay. that? And then if you, if this is easier, I have this too. Uh, No, it's just atmospheric. He was three years old and lost in the fog. <laughs> Naturally, he was very moistened. Thank you. You're welcome. onions, mushrooms, and hard nuts. Yeah, the onions are people whose essence I apprehend immediately, but the more I work with them, the more layers they develop and the more pungent and rounded they get. So Claire and Jamie are both uh, um, onions. A mushroom is somebody I wasn't expecting, which pops up out of nowhere and walks right off with any scene he or she is in. Mr. Willoughby and Lord John are both mushrooms. You know, I don't have to wait an instant to, to hear what Lord John is gonna say. <laughs> And he just pops up, and, you know, and his brother is the same way. Um, and uh, the hard nuts are the people that I'm stuck with, um, that I don't make up, so to speak. They're people either who are real historical figures who I have to use because of where we are in the story, or it is someone I'm stuck with because they're an integral part of the plot, which is Brianna. That's why I had such difficulty with her and, and Dragonfly and Ember, because uh, Claire was pregnant, there had to be 
because she's 18 years old. I knew nothing about her except who her parents were. And so I had to struggle with her for quite a bit before she would break open and you know, kind of reveal her debts, which she's done since then, but it, it, you know, it's a struggle with her. There's a fan group near where I live. They take me out to tea every year or so to pick my brains. And on one of these occasions, I got started on Black Jack Randall and said, oh, he's so, he's such scum, he's so loathsome, he makes my skin crawl. I'm sitting there sipping my tea and thinking, you have no idea who you're talking to Black Jack Randall. <laughs> to rewrite them or anything like that. But you know, the, let's put it this way, there who are sort of working on the literary executorship and how exactly to handle that, both in terms of how the rights to the books can be you know, used in my estate and also who gets to decide what is done with them. You know, under what circumstances can they be reprinted? Um, uh, should they be in any case you know, uh, given away? Uh, you know, it, it, depends how far down you go, they're only protected by copyright up to 75 years after my death. So, you know, my great-grandchildren or my great-great-grandchildren might, might have be having to deal with these if anyone's still reading these books, you know, as I, you know, I'm very young PC, I might be outlawed, you know, posthumously. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll see. Uh, but, you know, it basically it's just a real complicated thing. Um, so, you know, I'm sort of thinking, is there anything that I totally wouldn't let people do with them? And at the moment, I don't think there is, but that doesn't mean I can't think of one eventually. <laughs> so, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. She certainly knew from reading Claire's poem that there was something odd about her. <laughs> and, and that's why I wondered if she had known. I really don't know. I don't think so. so. Thank you. Okay, we'll take one more. We have one more question. Which is probably what you're thinking of. It's actually something he said to me you know, a number of years. 
years ago. He was reading the Wall Street Journal in the morning and he just looked up suddenly and said that to me. He said, you know, if when I die, my last words aren't I love you. We are just in awe of your work, and you are just on top of it, a wonderful person. So thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Thank you.